0: Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We have now made our way through the entire long section of teaching in Matthew 24. And now we're in Matthew 25. This is actually longer than just 24 and 25. This long teaching section of Jesus is Matthew 20. 20- 3:24 and 25 if you have one of those bibles with red letters that give all of Jesus's words in red letter you should just see a large chunk of red letters and that's what we'll see for the rest of chapter 25 and we're going to start it in verse 1 of chapter 25 to verse 13 as you're turning your bibles there i want you to realize that every culture has their own traditions when it comes to weddings last week Several of of us from Embassy Church, we went up to Wisconsin and we were participating in Ryan and Julia's wedding. And I just recently learned that uh, Ryan and Julia, they're both from a Romanian tradition, and it's customary for the groom and his family to make a lot of the wedding preparations. And now I was thinking about all of this and I said, wow, I've now got four daughters. Maybe what we should be doing is praying for our girls to meet a wonderful Christian man And it'd be even better if he was Romanian, right? In fact, this was not just the Romanian tradition. This was the tradition we see in the first century in the days of Jesus. When we read in John chapter 2 or in the Bible, the references to weddings, the men would pay for the wedding and then have this giant, large wedding reception in their house. And it would last for a week. It was a big wedding reception. Which I guess means that Christine and I, we don't necessarily need to just pray for a Romanian. We could just tell whatever young man that wants to marry one of our daughters and say, you know, if you're going to be really biblical, then you should pay for the wedding and have a big party. And although that's true that Jewish men paid and hosted for the wedding, I don't actually think that's the right biblical way to teach doing weddings. In fact, I don't think the Bible gives us any instructions about how we should celebrate weddings and marriages. The Bible has lots to say about divorce, marriage, remarriage, But the bible has almost nothing to say about what we should do to celebrate those two people coming together how we do the wedding is completely absent which means almost every wedding tradition that we see in our world is culturally relative for instance i've wondered a lot at weddings who thought of the idea that throwing a bouquet to all of the single ladies was a good idea I mean, it's already hard enough for singles to attend someone else's wedding, but for some reason we want to let everybody know who's single and then throw the bouquet so that the hopes of the person catching it would be the one that would maybe get married next. I mean, don't you ever just stop, step back and wonder and think, who thought this idea up? Who thought that this would be fun and funny when really it's kind of awkward and embarrassing? And let's not even start talking about the tossing of the bride's garter. If you need help thinking about why that might be a little weird or creepy, then I just suggest listen to Jim Gaffigan. He's a comedian who has a nice bit on weddings and its traditions. I'm bringing all this up because the passage we're studying today in Matthew 25 is all about cultural traditions in the first century. And if you're not familiar with them, you might not really understand what's going on. It's gonna just seem weird and awkward. Just like attending a wedding from someone else's culture in today's world, you might look at this passage and think, huh? What's going on? So I'm going to read the text and then hopefully be able to do a fair enough job to explain what is actually going on. Let's first read the text. It's Matthew 25 verses 1 to 13. Jesus is speaking and he's talking to his disciples and he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. the hour. Well, before I dive into the details of this story and hopefully try and, like I said, make some sense of these cultural traditions that Jesus is referring to, one simple big idea. What's this story about? And in some ways, it's not much different than what we heard last week or even the week before. But here you go. One sentence in summary. Jesus is saying, the wise disciples are those who are ready when the groom is delayed. Wise disciples are always ready, even when the groom is delayed. Clearly, this story is a contrast between five five wise young women and five foolish young women. What makes them wise? Well, in the story, it's that they are prepared. They're ready for the long haul of this wedding celebration. What is the groom's delay? We know from context in Matthew 24 and 25 that it's the coming of the Son of Man. So immediately, as we've seen, this has to do with the destruction of the temple. The destruction we know have already taken place in history, 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus was saying these very words. And that means we should take these words all the more seriously in our day in 2020. Because we too are waiting for another kind of coming of the Son of Man. That is, the, the second coming of Jesus and his return. So in short, before you kind of drift off or get distracted, Jesus is the groom. And you and I are either acting like one of these wise women or one of these foolish women. So which is it? Which are you? Are you prepared for the long haul? Are you, or are you just putting off things with God till later? Or to put it another way, do you struggle with procrastination? I mean, a lot of us do, but are you struggling with procrastination with God? One of the key points of this story is to teach us that this is one kind of test that you cannot cram for in the last minute. That's one of the main points and the big ideas of this story and the ones that Jesus is telling before and after it. So now let's walk through this story so you can see it with all of its brilliance and beauty and hopefully grip our hearts in a way that helps us not just take a little point away but really be changed through this word. I'm going to use Kenneth Bailey's uh, book, *The Looking at Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, to help us with this because he does a really great job at helping us understand some of the teachings of Jesus. And so several of these points you could just find in that work, and I'm going to summarize them here. First of all, Bailey says, we need to realize that the whole story revolves around preparing for a wedding reception, and that's to take place where? In the home of the groom, which is customary for that day, as I mentioned earlier. Big parties with crowds of people, family and friends, neighbors from around the villages would pour into a home and around the street. That's the end goal of the story. The ultimate picture of this story from Jesus is about a big party. Don't forget this point. Jesus is telling us a story that a groom is going to have a wedding reception in his home. But the party hasn't started yet when Jesus tells his story. He says a lot of Uh, Details, And then he assumes a lot of details, mostly because his disciples probably would have known how Jewish weddings worked. But we aren't mostly Jews in this field out in the first Methodist lawn. And so here's a few things that you need to realize that Jesus might have been assuming. We're supposed to imagine that as everyone is starting to gather for this week long party. And not just a, a few hours after a wedding ceremony as we do but a party for days. The groom and a few of his friends think like in our day, the groom and all of his groomsmen are going to go make their way on a trip to go get his bride. So they'd already been pledged to marriage. She'd already be betrothed. And so there'd already be a sense of like the, the marriage is legal, but it's not become consummated yet. They have not actually come together. So the groom and his groomsmen, some of his best buds, they're going to go and they're going to go get the bride. So that's what you need to be imagining in Jesus's story is that that's what they're doing. They might be going across town or they could be going to another nearby village. The trip could be shorter, it could be rather long. This is different from our wedding traditions, but in this day, the groom would go get his bride and then escort her back to his home where the anxious, excited crowd would await for this large marriage feast that we're referring to. Ken Bailey explains that the presence of the bride is implied in this story, even though she's never mentioned. So if you knew their wedding traditions, you know that that's the only thing that makes sense for a bridegroom that they're waiting for to have the marriage feast, is that the groom is going to get his bride. Once the bride is herself ready, then she'd be placed on the the back of an animal and the groom and then all the friends would start what would be this big, large marriage wedding parade. It would have been common for them to try and take the longest, most, slow route possible back to the groom's house because that was all part of the ritual and the ceremony and the celebration. So picture the scene, all these people wandering through the streets of the village so that everyone that isn't going to be able to make it or wasn't invited, they can at least see them and congratulate them and know, oh, it's a big wedding party. Congratulations. And in Jesus' story, all of this is happening at nighttime. He tells us that among those who were waiting at the groom's house, there were 10 young women, virgins, never been married. And each of them has a lamp or more accurately, we could say they have a torch, like a stick with something on the end of it. And then the oil is going to help keep it lit. And all of them have lit torches. Again, all of this is quite normal, not maybe normal to our wedding celebrations. We might think this sounds kind of crazy, but in their day, women would have regularly, old or young, had a lamp or a torch with them. And be quite odd, especially if you're a young virgin, unmarried, walking around in the dark without any light, you would not want to think that you would not want people to think that you were sneaking around in the middle of the dark, or that maybe some bad guy would be able to grab you and, and then no one would see who it was, it wasn't safe, and it would hurt your reputation. So normally, like everyday kind of life in the first century, you've got 10 young women with torches lit. And it says, five of them came prepared with extra olive oil with them, and the other five did not. And there they are, waiting at the house, with their torches lit, waiting for this big parade. And it seems as if it's taking a bit longer than usual. Maybe because of how the distance was, or who knows what. But in our day, I would compare it to that time between the wedding ceremony and the wedding reception. I'm sure all of you have been to one, and you've experienced this to some degree. You know that tradition in our weddings where the entire bridal party goes and takes pictures while everybody's going and meeting at the reception place and waiting for them to arrive? Well in some cases those pictures end up taking longer and longer and you're just waiting and waiting and the appetizers have run out and you're getting hungry and you say hey when's the dinner coming and imagine that scene that's the best example I can think in terms of what you and I may have experienced. Jesus' story is all about how the five wise young women were thinking ahead and thinking, you know, that happens a lot. And this could go deep into the middle of the night. So when the wedding party arrives, we want to make sure that we're ready and we have our torches lit. So they come prepared. But the other five women were not. When there's this long delay, they start to get sleepy. And all 10 of them put their torches aside and fall asleep. And then right as they're in the deep sleep of the night, 10 women wake up startled by the middle center of our story behold the bridegroom has come come to meet him and the parade shows up and the first people start shouting it out behold come meet your groom and this is the center moment that everyone's been waiting for everyone who's been inside the house would now become rushing out of the streets to greet them the 10 girls wake up from all the commotion they go grab their torches But they were asleep, and because they were asleep for some time, they needed more oil so they could have more light. And this is when the moment of horror and panic happens for these five girls who suddenly realize, oh no, it's too late. They're almost out of oil, and they have no reserves with them. And while all that's going on, just across the room, there's five young ladies calmly taking out their oil, replenishing their fire, and ready to enjoy the party and the feast. Desperate. help. The five foolish girls start begging and demanding, oh, share us some of your oil, to which they hear in a firm response, "Um, no, we don't have enough for you and us. You need to solve your own problems. This then leaves the five foolish girls with no choice. They've got to go back into town, buy some oil from one of the dealers. And sure enough, apparently when there would have been a big festival, dealers and merchants would have stayed open. And so this may be even quite literally a, a realistic scene, that they would have gone into town and bought some more oil. And while they were off buying this oil, the whole wedding party has now arrived. The entire crowd has made their way in. And now they're in the house and the door has been shut. After all, it is the middle of the night. Which brings us to the final scene. The five short-sighted, foolish women get their oil, fix their lamps, and arrive to the house and start knocking on the door. Sir, Lord, Lord, open up. They start shouting through the, the shut door and the groom replies, I, I'm sorry, I do not know you. And that's how the story ends. It's a bit of like a cliffhanger. Boom, mic drop. What happens next? Is that the end of the story? That's all we have. We don't know what happens next because that's kind of the point. The point is that the groom is coming. He's going to have a big wedding party and the person who is wise will be ready for that delay however long that delay is. In Jesus' day he told them that the destruction of the temple will come and the coming of the Son of Man will be at a day and an hour that no one knows. There will be a delay though And no one knows the time or hour and so they need to be ready at any time here we are two thousand years later in 2020 and in a similar way there's a coming of the son of man the second coming of jesus and in many ways as we saw jesus's words about the temple come true there's a delay where we need to trust by faith and believe that jesus will return and some of us might be tempted to think "Uh, i'm not so sure and the rest of the bible teaches us that we're waiting though We're waiting not just for Jesus to return and take us away from the earth, but for Jesus to come to earth and to establish a large party on his earth, in his house. And that will be like the coming of a bridegroom for a large feast that lasts not just for seven days, but for all of eternity. So I ask you again, how ready are you for that day? Is your torch lit? Do you have oil for the long haul? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that his followers should be the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And he says that this light on a hill is the good deeds that we have done so that the world will see those good deeds and give glory to the Father in heaven. How are you feeling about your good deeds, your actions? Are they bright like a light shining with the love of Jesus? When the party that Jesus starts, will you be running around trying to make yourself ready at last at the very frantic minutes of his return only to realize, oh, it's too late? Or will you be like one of these five wise women who were calmly adding the oil, joyfully joining the party without any worries or fears? Examine your torches. Take inventory and stock of your oil think right now is your speech and conduct pleasing to god is the way you talk to your friends family co-workers throughout your day and week that which is helpful for building one another up or are there careless words that you have said today this morning yesterday this week that you regret how about the way you spend your money are you storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven or are you using them to purchase more and more possessions to make you feel better about yourself? Or if we examined your relationships in your family, husbands, how are you doing at being the Ephesians 5 husband that loves your wife like Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her? Are you considerate? Do you remind her that she needs to submit to you every day? Submit woman, that's my favorite Bible verse. Or Are you showing by your example what kind of leader you really are? One that looks a lot like Jesus. Wives, how are you doing at showing respect to your husbands? Are you spending more time complaining about all the things that are bothering you or more time encouraging him with all the things that God is doing in his life and praying for him? Children, yes, children. Are you ready for the big party that Jesus wants to throw? Do not wait till you're older do not believe the lie that church is for grown-ups and that you will get around to this stuff once you get older what if you spent more time this next week reading the bible spending time in prayer and thinking more about heaven and the return of jesus like a big party than you did playing video games or watching tv could you do it i mean that quite literally could you do that for one week Do you think you could do it and more importantly, do it and actually enjoy it as if that would be one of the best ways to spend your week? Does that even sound like a good time? Any of you here that are single, in what ways are you viewing your state of singleness as a gift from God? And I don't mean that as a gift as if you've got a special gift and we who are married don't have that gift. First Corinthians 7 says that we all have a gift, a state of life that we're in. We're either single, and that's a gift, or we're married, and that's a gift. And they have pros and cons. Do you look at singleness as a curse or as a gift? How are you using this season to make much of Jesus? And more importantly, more than anything else, do you see and realize that all earthly marriages, whether you will have one or not, are temporary? And the ultimate prize is not a wife or a husband on earth, but the thing that will bring all of us true and everlasting joy is when Christ the groom returns for his bride this is the one detail about the weddings in jesus day that i want all of us to remember today not only did the groom and his family pay for the wedding and the big long week of celebration at his home but the groom would pray literally pay money for his bride they would give gifts of some sort sometimes even cash itself this was called a dowry And again, I think I might be a little jealous that we don't practice this tradition anymore today because I feel like four girls would be quite good investment of my future income. But that's okay. I'm just joking around because I know that God the Father has sent his son to pay for the price, the ultimate price of God's bride. As we read earlier in the service in Hosea chapter 2, God, the Father in heaven, wants to be viewed you will know the Lord when you know him as a husband people that had no mercy he's going to say have mercy and those who were not my people he is going to call his people do you know how much it cost God for us to be married to him in this way what was the dowry price for God to get married to all of the humans on the earth everything It cost him everything. It cost him his very life. God sent himself, his son Jesus, to die on a cross to pay for sins so that you and I could turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus, the true bridegroom who's come for us. Then you will know, and only then, that there is enough oil in your lamp for Jesus. It is the true meaning of having yourself ready for the great wedding day. When he died on the cross, he did not just forgive us of our sins and all the bad deeds we have done, but he gave us his Holy Spirit. He deposited into our account his perfect record of righteousness. And now we have at our disposal an endless reserve of oil so that your torch will always be lit. The Holy Spirit is the oil That makes us a city on a hill and a light to the world we do not do this in our own strength we depend daily on the strength we get from god so that he gets all the glory that's what jesus said in matthew chapter 5. may they see your good deeds and give glory to you read it again so they give glory to the father in heaven as we rely on the transforming love of god to perform all the good deeds we would ever do and give glory to the father in heaven. So do not once think that this story is a story about how you need to go buy a bunch of oil, namely do a bunch of good deeds on your own for your whole life. And then this is what it means to get ready for when Jesus returns. Instead realize that the whole reason that the book of Matthew exists and the reason why Jesus came was to die on a cross and rise again from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father and pour out the never-ending fountain of oil that you and I need today and tomorrow and every day. So are you the wise woman who keeps the fire burning by coming again to the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel? Does this describe you? And is it pouring out not just love in your heart, but good deeds with your hands? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come now in the name of Jesus, thanking you for the gift of the Spirit and the never-ending source of life that comes through the good news of the gospel. I pray that that good news would give us life today. It would keep our fire lit for Christ, and it would transform us in all the very ways that we were examining today. Make us husbands that are more like Jesus. Make us wives that are praying for, supporting, and encouraging our husbands. Make us singles that are using our singleness as a gift. Make us children that are making, taking time to be serious about the things of God and, and serious about his word and wanting to grow in our faith in Jesus. What I pray in whatever stage or station of life, wherever we come from, that we would turn to you today. Be reminded of our need for the gospel, our need for your grace and your mercy. And ultimately, God, may the love that you would chase after us, even though we have been like the harlot, the one who has run away, been unfaithful, the adulteress, you still love us. And you still want to woo us back through your great, tender mercy and forgiveness and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.